welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along. Glad you're here. Last week we started a series and the series is going to run between Easter and Pentecost, which is about six weeks season. And uh, our topic is the people of God empowered. And through this series, we're going to be looking particularly at the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, since it is He uh, who empowers God's people. Uh, Last week, in introducing the study, we looked at His personality and His deity, and we noted that the Holy Spirit isn't some impersonal force like magnetism or electricity. He's none other than a divine personality. This week, I want to be really ambitious in terms of what we hope to cover. Uh, I want to look at the person and ministry in uh, the person ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. So we're going to run from Genesis to Malachi, and uh, we are going to let you out before midnight. So um, obviously, when you're tackling something like this, you're unbelievably brief. You're doing a flyover of uh, a large period of time. We're not going to look in any detail at Um, at at particular texts, uh, but just give us an overall picture. What I I want you to see with me tonight is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit didn't begin at the day of Pentecost. Um, The outpouring on that day wasn't new in some respects. Um, There's a history of the Holy Spirit's activities and working leading up to that point. Now, it is true to say that the activities and personality of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament are somewhat shrouded in mystery. In the Old Testament, he was probably treated a bit more like an it than a he, and uh, it really does require the revelation of the New Testament to understand something of his personality and his deity. And yet, having said that, there are many passages in the Old Testament where his ministry, his activity is outlined, and as we look at those, it begins to give us a kind of a composite picture of who this person is and what he does. Now, we're introduced to him at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, and we're introduced to him as creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here we are, right at the beginning of the Bible, we see this spirit. The Hebrew word is ruach, which means a kind of a wind or a breath. We see the Holy Spirit hovering or brooding bird-like over this primal chaos and darkness. An interesting aside, actually, is as you look at the scriptures, you see God's activity often described in bird-like activity. The Father is... The eagle, the bird that flies higher than any other bird and sees further than any other bird does. The son speaks of himself as a hen who would gather uh, believers, gather people who would come under his wing. Here we see the Holy Spirit compared to a dove that hovers and broods over, over us. There is so much in this opening passage that really deserves way more time than we can give it. But in the first couple of verses, we're provided with a really interesting footprint or fingerprint, if you like, of the 
of the Trinity, of the Trinitarian community. Because the Hebrew word for God in this passage is Elohim, which is Hebrew plural. But when you look at the verbs that introduce his action, they are all in the singular form. And that's a fascinating grammatical irregularity. If you've got a plural, you have plural verbs. But here we've got a plural God singularly creating. And we won't time to unpack that, but, but already in the very first verse, you have something of, a, of an unveiling of, of this Trinitarian community that throughout the scriptures we're going to be introduced to. In this passage, the Word and the Spirit combine to bring order and harmony out of the disorder and the chaos. And the Holy Spirit acts as the executive agent of the Godhead. He executes or puts into action the commands that the Word speaks. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of His mouth all of their hosts. So here you've got the word and the breath interacting to bring life. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, when you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. So God commands, the spirit immediately effects. There's order out of chaos. There's light out of darkness. There's life out of death. He's the creator spirit. A little further on in the creation account, in chapter 2, verse 7, we find God fashioning the first man, and he breathes into him the breath of life. Job 33, verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me the breath of Almighty gives me life. He's the creative power that animates Adam's life. Giving life wasn't just something that he did once upon a time, but no longer does. He's still involved in the creation business. The new creation that God is fashioning is dependent on him. He still hovers over our darkness and our disorder, seeking to bring harmony and life out of our brokenness. He's the one that moves in prevenient grace, the going before grace that sets us up to be found by God. Okay? We speak of our finding God. You know, you often hear a person testifying or sharing and they say, you know, I found God when I was, and they'll explain the situation. You know, we understand that language. I'm not criticizing the language per se, but we recognize that actually it, we, it was we that were found. God wasn't lost. We were. C.S. Lewis amusingly, amusingly speaks about the idea of us finding God. He said we might as well talk about the mice finding the cat or the mouse finding the cat as talk about us finding God. The reality is many of us weren't looking for him. We were studiously, assiduously seeking to avoid him at all costs. But the Holy Spirit was incredibly faithful in brooding over our darkness and drawing us to redemption. And he creates us anew. So he's the creator. You don't go far in Genesis, you only have to go a few more chapters. Chapter 6, and you find another aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry being highlighted. He's the one that brings conviction to us in our brokenness. In Genesis chapter 6, we've got a sad and sordid story about aberrant sexual activity followed by terrible violence. Sounds very modern, doesn't it? And in the midst of that story, it says in Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. In this context of sin and rebellion and failure, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply abandon it. He doesn't move out. He doesn't leave the scene. But he strives with mankind, seeking to bring to them repentance and change. 
One of the things that you note immediately about this is that though he strives, he never overwhelms with superior force. He strives, but he does not coerce. The devil drives. Evil spirits drive and force. The Holy Spirit does not. He will convict, but he respects your personal sovereignty. And I want to just say to you, hell is the ultimate monument in terms of God's respect for your free will. He will contend with you, he will strive with you, but he will not coerce you, and ultimately, he will allow you to have your own way for all eternity if that's what you demand from him. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Comforter, and he also outlines this same ministry, this ministry of convicting or striving. In John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11 in the Message Translation, it says this, When he comes, he will expose the error of this godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin, that righteousness comes from above, where I am with the Father out of their sight and control, that judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world is brought to trial and is convicted. Some translations talk about he will convict and he will reprove. And he does this clearly about three issues, about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world in its rebellion doesn't think clearly about those three concepts. You know, sin clouds and darkens our perception, and rebellion of the will is nearly always accompanied with a fogging of the intellect. We don't see anything with clarity. In our contemporary culture, sin isn't anything that we take seriously. If we talk about it at all, which is very rare for the most part, the context tends to be at a a chocolate dessert with too high a calorific value. You know, we say, oh man, that chocolate dessert is positively sinful. We, we dare not, however, describe somebody's behavior as sinful. You do that and the politically correct police will be down on your head in a fraction of a, sec in a, fraction of a second. How dare you be so judgmental? The only sinful thing, it seems, in our community is to call something sinful. We don't understand the seriousness of sin. We most certainly don't understand the concept of righteousness. Quite truthfully, we are completely ignorant. We don't have a clue in our contemporary society about what it means to be righteous. As long as nobody gets hurt is pathetically the best that we can come up with as a standard for righteousness. You talk about setting the bar high. Our community has taken the bar and set it on the ground and we still trip over it as far as righteousness goes. And of course, there's judgment. Well, we simply don't give that any thought. Most modern people don't believe in hell and judgment, do they? You'll notice in this passage that Jesus says the reason people don't believe or don't think clearly about these concepts of sin, righteousness, and judgment is clearly not ignorance. It amounts to willful blindness. They will not see. It stems from a refusal to believe. Unbelief is the basic root sin, he says, and it's willful. This refusal to believe is not a result of a lack of evidence. It's a choice that we make in spite of the evidence. Frank, frankly, the evidence is sufficient. 
You know, Psalm 19 starts off and says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There is nobody who on a starry night can't look up and see something of the power and glory of God. Romans puts it this way, chapter 1, verse 20. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. Nobody, it says. So nobody has a good excuse. Well, you might say, well, well, God should make it even more plain. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked, what if you're wrong? What if you die and suddenly you are faced with your maker? What will you say? And he said, I'll tell God he never gave me enough evidence. He never gave me enough proof. But I'll tell you something. God will not overwhelm you either with coercive force or with overwhelming evidence. He will respect your ability to choose. Charles Pinnock, the author, says this. We have been placed at the right epistemic distance from God. The word epistemic basically means it has to do with knowledge and how we understand knowledge and where we get knowledge from. He says we've been placed at the right epistemic distance from God to make real decisions. The evidence for God's reality is sufficient but not excessive. He will not overwhelm people. He respects your free choice. Jesus bluntly says the problem is not a lack of evidence. It's that we come to the evidence predisposed to either believe or not believe. John chapter 3, he says this. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. Our willful sin and rebellion addicts us to denial and illusion. You know, people, over the years I've seen people leave the faith and and they, they will, you know, give me some kind of pseudo-intellectual reason that backs up their, their backing off the things of God. In my experience, I've noted that the problem is very rarely intellectual, that far more often it's either moral or ethical, and they cover it with pseudo-intellectual reasons. The rational part of us supplies reasons to justify our predilections. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't grapple with intellectual problems. You should. There are intellectual issues. But, but it's not usually the issue, in my experience. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to challenge our denials, to speak to our illusions, and to help us see things as they truly are and not simply the way we would like them to be. So he convicts us. He reproves us. You say, well, Don, how does he do that? Well, he speaks to us through our conscience. That internal sense that every single person has of right and wrong. Your conscience is not simply the process of socialization that has taken the cultural norms and burned them into you so that you feel bad when you've offended what we culturally believe. 
Actually, the conscience is part of God's creative design for us. Paul spoke to it again in Romans, Romans chapter 2. He said, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. When, when we come to Christ, our conscience is battered and bruised as a result of the fall like everything else about us. But Hebrews talks about it being cleansed and represented to God. And as we walk with him, it is recalibrated so that the witness of our conscience and the witness of the Holy Spirit closes ranks to become one. Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience, enlightened and prompted by the Holy Spirit, bears witness with me. That ministry of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings to us comes through that internal sense of, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be here. Or whatever it is that it says to us. And if you want to walk in friendship with him, I'm going to tell you, you need to listen to that. It's not just conscience that brings you to salvation, but we are called to walk in a relationship of friendship with him and the conscience, prompted and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, speaks to us about what he wants, how he wants us to function. Often people complain to me and they say, Don, I don't hear the voice of God. You know what? You hear it far more than you realize. You just never knew what it was. It's that internal monitor that the Holy Spirit starts to speak into and through. Okay, we're up to Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We've got a few to go. I'm going to do the rest really quickly, okay? We've seen him as creator. We've seen him as the one who brings the ministry of conviction. The rest of the Bible, I'm going to sum up in the phrase, he's the one who enables us charismatic charismatically. He is the charismatic enablement of the lives of people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came usually temporarily on particular people for particular tasks at particular times. It wasn't the experience of the whole community. It tended to be on the few for the sake of the many. When he came to people, he enabled them to do, to say, or to be things that ordinarily they would be quite incapable of doing, saying, or being. So let me very briefly look at those three things. Empowered to do. People did things empowered by the Holy Spirit that truly in the Old Testament, they were extraordinary. It ranges from the ability to be artistic through to feats of physical strength and military prowess and numerous other things in between. One of the first characters who's said to be filled with the Spirit is a man by the name of Bezalel. And it says of him in Exodus 31, God spoke to Moses, see what I've done. I have personally chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him skill and know-how and expertise in every kind of craft to create designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set gemstones to carve wood. He's an all-round craftsman. The Holy Spirit can and does still empower people to be creative, to write, to create, to paint, to sing, in ways that minister people and draw them to God or to beauty, which is one and the same thing. 
The book of Judges, as you read that, is a very, very charismatic book. Numerous people were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do remarkable things. In chapter 6, Gideon is clothed by the Spirit and in that power and strength defeats the Midianites. Then we've got this remarkable story of a man by the name of Samson, called also to be a deliverer, doing incredible feats of strength. I don't know what you think of when you think of Samson. When you see pictures of him, if you do in children's Bibles, he's usually, he's usually built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. He's got muscles in places where I don't have places. But if that was true, if that was true, let me ask you this question. If he, if he was built like a, you know, a brick outhouse, excuse me, but, you know, solid as, why would the Philistines look at him really puzzled and say, where does he get his strength from? I mean, really? I mean, look at the biceps, for goodness sake. Why would Delilah pester him and say, where do you get your strength from? I, I suspect that Samson didn't look any different than an ordinary person in the street, and you would pass him by and never think, flip, look at those abs. If he was built like that, why weren't the Philistines saying, hey, find out what Jimmy goes to. Find out what supplements or steroids he's on. We've got to get that stuff for our guys. They, they could not work it out. He was an ordinary person doing extraordinary things under the power of the Holy Spirit. What we do see in Samson and many of the other judges also is the very real danger of having charisma without character, of having power without purity. And that's been a problem that has haunted the people of God down through the ages. Empowered to do things, empowered to say things. People spoke in the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We call them prophets. And much of the Old Testament literature is given to recording and describing the actions and words of these prophetic people. In times of crisis uh, in Israel's life, God would send prophets to his people with his message for them in that season. And, and prophecy isn't just about future happenings. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a modern-day prophet in our midst. Tony Saxon's going to be with us. And one of the things you'll notice is Tony doesn't always just speak about what's out there. Sometimes he'll speak about what's in your past. Sometimes he'll speak about what's currently going on. Sometimes he'll speak about the future. Prophecy includes hindsight, insight, as well as foresight. These prophets would step onto the stage at a crisis point in Israel's history. They would appeal to the past by reminding these people of God's covenantal promises to them and the covenantal conditions. They would provide an astute diagnosis of the present problems and they would give an accurate prognosis of the future depending on how these people responded. They brought the thus saith the Lord into the present situation. And they were empowered not just to speak, but often they were empowered and had to live out their messages. To Jeremiah, God says, don't marry. To Hosea, he says, marry a prostitute. To Ezekiel, he says, your wife's going to die. Don't weep. Don't mourn. To Isaiah, he says, you go naked for three years as an indication that these people are going to go into captivity. I read that and think, any takers for the prophetic office? I'm not in a hurry. Bob Mumford years ago used to say to us, a sure sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues or prophesying or even the fruit of the Spirit. A sure sign of being filled with the Spirit is trouble. And there's some truth in it, okay? There's some truth. Empowered 
to do, empowered to speak, empowered to be. One of the main reasons the Holy Spirit came on people in the Old Testament was so that they could be leaders of God's people. In fact, it says in Isaiah 28 verse 6 that he gives a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. That's the leaders. And administrates the law and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. He anoints leaders, enables them to lead. And in the Old Testament, there were basically three kind of leaders that were anointed and empowered. There were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Some people held more than one office. For example, David was both king and prophet. Samuel was both prophet and priest. But there was no one in the Old Testament who fulfilled all of those roles, prophet, priest, and king. But in Jewish literature, there was the hope that one would come, their Messiah, and he would fulfill all three offices. He would be king, he would be priest, He would be prophet. He would have the ability of the Spirit that would be balanced by the character of the Spirit. Isaiah spoke really clearly about this one who would come. In Isaiah chapter 11, he says, a green shoot will sprout from Jesse's stump. He's saying he'll be out of the family of David. And from his roots, a budding branch, the life-giving Spirit of God will hover over him. The Spirit that brings wisdom and understanding. The Spirit that gives direction and builds strength. The Spirit that instills knowledge and fear of God. The fear of God will be all his joy and delight. He won't judge by appearances. He won't decide on the basis of hearsay. He'll judge the needy by what is right, render decisions on earth's poor with justice. His words will bring everyone to awed attention A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning he'll put on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. It's the message translation. Later on, Isaiah saw another servant leader in the later chapters where he does what are called the servant songs. Isaiah 53 is part of that servant songs uh, series. and, And he sees a leader who will come to suffer for God's people. He didn't know how to reconcile this triumphant king with the suffering servant. Down through history, the Jews didn't know how to reconcile those two leaders. They called one Ben David, son of David, the triumphant king. They called the other Ben Joseph, the suffering servant that they didn't quite know where he fitted. They didn't know that they were one and the same person. This was Jesus who came, the anointed king, the anointed one, who would suffer for his people. The Jewish hope also saw not just a spirit-filled sovereign, but they saw spirit-filled subjects of that spirit-filled sovereign. Many prophets spoke about the hope that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of the king's subjects, not just a few for the sake of the many, but on the many. Moses talked about it one time when he separated 70 elders for, uh, you know, assisting him in the task of leadership. And as they are being separated, the spirit of the Lord falls on them. They start prophesying. Someone runs from the camp and says, hey, there's two guys out here, Eldad and Medad. They're prophesying and they're not with the in group. Shall, Shall we stop them? And Moses sort of wistfully says, would that all of God's people would be prophets. He longed for the day when the Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people. And the other prophets spoke about this. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel spoke 
prophetically about a time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all God's people. Now, the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come, the outpouring of the Spirit would take place, the end of the age would happen simultaneously. This evil present age would be stopped as the Messiah came in judgment on God's enemies, um, you know, it would be all over. He would come as the spirit-filled sovereign. His spirit-filled people would then go into this new age. What they did not anticipate and struggled over and still do was that that spirit-filled sovereign stepped from the end into the middle of history and broke into this present age and died rose again and poured out his spirit. And this is the inauguration of the new age. They were correct. But they expected it at the end. Jesus brought it into the middle. And you know what? He's the spirit-filled sovereign that they longed for and hoped for. And we are the spirit-filled subjects of that sovereign. Subject to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that started on the day of Pentecost. You and I are living in the presence of the future. We live between the times. The kingdom of God has come. It's not here in its fullness, and it is yet to come in its fullness, but it's here, but not yet in its fullness. And we live in the tension of those times. And in the tension of those times, we are called to exhibit both the character and the dynamic of the age that has been inaugurated. We're the kingdom of God. We're the light, we're the salt. Jesus says, you go out, be my witness. Show them that the end of the age has come in me, in my resurrection and my outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you, that is, that is a tall order. It's an incredible privilege. It's an even greater responsibility. But the resources are sufficient. He says, I'll be with you. You go out and do this, I will be with you until the end of the age. This is our call. This is our challenge. This isn't just some teaching that, you know, oh, yeah, 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 it's interesting. You and I are new creation. If any man be in Christ, Paul said, whoa, new creation. It started. The new heavens and the new earth has begun. And it's begun in you and me. We are microcosms now of what will be then and there. And we're called to start exhibiting the character qualities that are required to live in that age, the fruit of the Spirit. So God is starting to work on us to position us for the age that's to come. And we bear witness. That's our call. That's our challenge. Okay. I'm done. And the unannounced is about to be enforced, okay? So I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, uh, uh, listen, just... We, we really do need you to cooperate with us. Please don't just say, oh, look, I'm, I'm not hanging around for this, I'm going. My car's over there, I'm out of here. We won't keep you long, but, but we do need to do this well and properly. Um, God forbid that we'll ever have to do it in anger and in seriousness, but we want to do it properly so that when, when, if ever it happens, we know what we're doing. So I'm going to pronounce the benediction and then we'll see where we go from there, okay? <laughs> Lift your hands. <laughs> you know where we're going to go from there. You better know. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May God's love, Jesus' grace, and the Holy Spirit's friendship be with you tonight and always as you bear witness to the new age. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.